Hey y'all, and welcome to this week's Pain in the Pod. Y'all, I'm so excited. I'm beside myself. I finally got Joe Nocera of the podcast, The Shrink Next Door. Some of you may or may not know the story, but I tried to get him on last year, and at the last minute, he had to cancel. So I got him locked down during quarantine, and he is talking to me from his Hamptons house right next door to Marty, the patient in The Shrink Next Door. If you haven't listened to The Shrink Next Door, go and listen to it now because it is. I would say one of the wildest rides you'll ever go on. It is one of my top five podcasts of all time. And a movie will be coming out soon starring Paul Rudd and Will Ferrell that will be on Apple TV about this story. So take a listen to this week's podcast with Joe Nocera. And don't forget, head on over to Patreon and sign up there if you want to give some support and get some extra content. That's patreon.com slash pain in the pod. Thanks and take a listen. Hey y'all, and welcome to Pain in the Pod. Today's guest is very exciting for me as I've been trying to get him on the podcast for a year. It's Joe Nocera of The Shrink Next Door. Now, I'm sure many of you have listened to The Shrink Next Door, but if you haven't, first of all, go back and listen and then come back. It's a wild ride, that's to say the least. Joe was a journalist for the New York Times and had a house in the Hamptons, and the shrink was his next-door neighbor, Ike Hershkoff. Turns out the man that Joe thought was the groundskeeper, Marty, owned the house and the shrink had taken it over. And it just goes downhill and uphill and in a crazy circle from there. Joe, thank you so much for coming and joining me today. Uh, Thanks for having me, Mary Payne. And I should point out that I'm sitting in that very house even as we speak. That was going to be my first question. Um, Okay, so you are sheltering in place in the Hamptons. I, I certainly am. And Marty and his sister Phyllis are sheltering in place right next door to me. Now, I think this uh, this calls for a follow-up podcast. You just run over there with your iPhone <laughs> and start asking them questions. Well, we are going to do one more episode, which we can talk okay. about later. Um, so I am glad he's around and I can stick a microphone in his face. Okay. Oh, my to. gosh. That's amazing. I feel, like, I feel like this was maybe serendipity because we didn't get to talk last year when we wanted to. Um, so now we're doing it now because we're under quarantine and what's everybody else doing? So I feel like this is maybe meant to be since you're ne- right next door to Marty right now. And there's updates. So maybe it's meant to be. Okay. First, I want you to tell my listeners about your journalistic background because you were telling me before we started you worked for the times and now bloomberg but you've been a journalist for a really really long time so tell my listeners about your background in journalism um i have primarily been a business writer most of my life um starting when i was in my late 20s and early 30s in texas at a mag at a great magazine i might add called texas monthly uh i moved to the east coast when i had a my first child because that's where you know the, all the grandparents were and began to work for a series of magazines, Esquire. I wrote a business column for Esquire. I wrote a business column for GQ. I was with Newsweek for a while. Um, and then I joined Fortune magazine. And I was there for about 10 or 11 years. Um, and went from Fortune to the New York Times for 11 years. And then on to Bloomberg uh, for four years. And uh, as I'm sure we'll get into, the genesis. So The Shrink Next Door is obviously not a business story. Right. Um, even though that's my calling card. It's just a story, a, a fascinating story that fell into my lap precisely because I live next door to where all this was going on. Yeah, it, it totally. And to me, the story of the shrink next door is four pronged. And tell me if you agree. We have the main story, which is the relationship between 
uh, Marty, your neighbor, and his shrink, uh, Ike. So there's the main story, the relationship between those two. Then we have the business aspect where Ike, the shrink, goes in under a fake name and takes over Marty's business, basically. And then we have the family aspect where Ike encourages Marty to stop speaking to his only family that he has and make Ike, the shrink, the beneficiary of his will. And then we have um, the other patients who come forward to tell misconduct. So it's, it's, and each one of those stories could be a podcast in themselves. Right. Did I miss anything? No, you didn't. There is a fifth aspect, um, which we didn't really get into very much. We just kind of glanced at it. Um, which is that Ike is the child of Holocaust survivors, and um, his uncle and aunt were the uh, doctor and nurse at the Jewish doctor and nurse at Auschwitz. Wow! And saved and saved many people as a result. And uh, Ike grew up worshiping his uncle um, for his heroism and views the Holocaust. He likes to say the most important event in my life happened before I was born. Mm-hmm. And he's speaking. He's speaking of the Holocaust again. That could be a whole story. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, his stepsister is the youngest person to have survived Auschwitz. She was four years old, and the reason she survived was because the uncle basically protected her and was able to protect her because of his prominence as a doctor in the camps. You would think that Ike would really. Um have turned out differently then you don't know i mean um yeah you know who who can say ike's relationship with his own father was not very good at all yeah and um who can say what form causes people to become you know what they become yeah 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 so let's 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 establish a timeline for the podcast just for my own uh mental health i went through the whole thing again this weekend and tried to make notes um so marty met ike so again, for people who haven't listened, Marty is the patient, Ike is the shrink. Marty met Ike in 1981, and he was in his grips, basically, as his patient, friend, and sort of as a cult follower until 2001, so 30 years. Um, no, if it was 2001, that'd only be 20 years, Mary Payne. Well, you know, I can't do math. I majored in English. <laughs> it, it, he, he was... <laughs> He was with him. Uh, uh, Marty was with Ike till 2010. 2010. Okay. Well, see, then I'm glad I asked because I'm terrible. It, listen, this is not new information to my listeners. They know I can't do math. Okay. Um, so you've, okay, well, this makes sense then. My next note. You first talked to Marty and heard his story in 2012, but you had met him before because you thought he was the groundskeeper. He had come to your house and invited you to a party of what you thought was his boss and then in 2012, you start talking to him and realize all along, he's the owner of that house. And his therapist basically had taken over the master bedroom, had built on like this golf course, like all this stuff. And the whole time you thought Marty was the groundskeeper, but he's the owner of this, I imagine, millions dollar property in the Hamptons. Okay. So um, I, I moved, uh, I bought my house the summer before Marty decided to break off with Ike. So that's 2010. That's when okay. I bought my house. Okay. So that was the summer when Marty, in the guise of the caretaker, came over to me and said, Ike wants to meet you. He wants you to come to this party. He wants to have a drink with you and your wife, all of which happened. Right. 
So, you know, every, you know how it is in a summer place. You know, everybody goes into hibernation in the wintertime, and then you emerge again in May or whatever. And that's when the neighbor across the street says to me, Joe, did you hear, what ha- hear about Marty? And I said, no, I didn't hear anything. And he said, Marty kicked Ike out. And I said, what? And he said, <laughs> he said, Marty turns out to be the owner of the house. And not only that, he's Ike's patient. So I'm completely flabbergasted, needless to say. And then the next thing that happens is about a week later, Marty shows up in my backyard with a woman. And he says, Joe, I'd like you to meet Phyllis, my sister. I haven't seen her in 27 years. So that's the point at which I'm saying to myself, I got to know more about this. Uh I am I am interested in how this happened and what happened, because, you know, millions and millions of people, myself included, have been in therapy. We have some idea of how it's supposed to work. You know, I would never let my therapist even in my house, much less take it over. So this is like, huh, this is way too weird. So that's when I started, basically 2011 and 2012, I was basically reporting this story, finding other sources, make, doing interviews, even meeting Ike at the time. Right. Thinking that I was going to write a big magazine story about it for the New York Times. Right. Which I, I'm going to ask you, I don't understand why they wouldn't run it. Of course, now they're probably like, this is the biggest story ever. Um, so Marty... First met Ike in 81 and started going to therapy once a week and then twice a week. Now, other patients said at that time it was $200 a session. Okay. So in today's dollars, it's, I know I said I wasn't good at math, but I can use Google. It was $567 a session. Right. Okay. Now, just, now, I got to remember. That's a lot. You got to remember. You got to remember. Um, where do you live, Mary Payne? Uh, the DC area. Okay. Well, DC is pretty expensive, but New York is the the most expensive place in the country to have therapy. Okay. So uh, Ike's prices were high, but they weren't insanely high for a high end therapist, which Ike definitely considered himself to be. Okay. Um, so you would so, consider five sixty seven to be high per session if you're not getting like insurance reimbursed. I would consider it to be high, but I would not consider it to be out of line with the top therapist in New York. Okay. Well, that was my question because, you know, it, like you said, everybody's been in therapy. Everybody, my family's been in therapy, you know, back and forth years. So I know about these prices. And I think like here in the DC area, the most we've ever paid for anybody to have therapy is like 220. So in my mind, like 567 would be crazy, but I understand what you're saying about New York, but still that seems crazy. Cause you're spending over a thousand bucks a week, you know? I know, but, but honestly, of all of all the crappy things I did, this is low on the total pole. <laughs> that's not the, that's not the worst. Um, but you know, ethically, he also tried to get uh, Ike's sister Phyllis in as a patient. Well, Marty said, um, "Sorry, I meant Marty's sister." Marty said to Phyllis, "Like he's really helped me. You should go in." And Phyllis goes in, and after you know meeting with him, was like, "Oh, sure, he's charismatic and whatever, but I think it's ethically not great because what if I wanted to complain about my brother? Now he's also a patient. Now, that's just like one of the that's just like scraping the surface of the unethical things he did. Um, it just feels like to me, and I do a lot of like true crime podcasts and stuff. It seems to me like Ike was like almost like a cult leader because that's what cult leaders do, right? They try to 
either bring your family in or push your family away and they isolate you and they take over your money and they take over your mind and they it, it makes think that like you can't live without them. So, I mean, right. I kind of miss right. his calling as a cult leader. Yeah. Um, well, actually, he was a cult leader when you think about it, because this didn't just happen to Marty. It happened to a whole lot of people. Uh, I did have a way of taking control of people's lives or, or directing them to do certain things or telling them you shouldn't marry this person or you should get rid of that person from your life. And um, he, he had a real knack for that. Now, in the case of Marty, you know, um, it's worth remembering, by the way, that he was a very young psychiatrist at this point in his career. So it's not like he'd had 20 years to think about how he was going to do this. He was doing it almost from the start. So in Marty's case, you know, he comes over to his office. I mean, therapists aren't supposed to go to the office of the patient. He then starts to advise him about his business. He then starts, then he then sets up a foundation with Marty. Uh, and ultimately, Marty puts in a million dollars. Ike puts in about 150000 but most of the money goes to things that Ike wants to spend it on, especially celebrity dinners, celebrity-studded dinners where he can have his picture taken by Marty, by the way, who's there with a camera. Marty winds up being his secretary, types all his manuscripts. <laughs> yeah. While, while paying him, by the way, while paying him at the same time, my, uh, uh, he does his correspondence, and in the files that I saw from Marty, there are at least 15 to 20 letters that refer to other patients, which means Marty was typing correspondence having to do with confidential information about another patient, which I found just, I was astounded, yeah. um, including, like as we note in the podcast, um, um, what's her name? Courtney, uh, Courtney Love. Courtney Love. Yeah. Uh, you know, I wonder, and, I was and, wondering if you ever heard from Courtney Love after that. Um, no, I didn't. I mean, I don't think, I don't think Courtney Love much cares whether you say that she's been in therapy or not. Um, uh, well, Marty said that the stuff that was in it, he could have sold to the National Enquirer and retired. I, you know? I've read that. I've read that letter and we made a conscious decision at Bloomberg and Wondery not to divulge the details of it because it is so raw and so personal and is the sort of thing you would only tell your shrink. Right. But now, like, you saw it. Marty saw yeah. it. Like, I mean, all these people saw it. And it, it, say what you will about, uh, you know, Courtney Love. She's of, uh, you know, my generation. I love Nirvana and her band and all that. But I, um, that's crazy to, to think that all her per really personal information is just out there and i'm that's why i'm saying i'm surprised because she is uh known to be a little bit litigious <laughs> so yeah well i never i did i definitely did not hear from her just for the record okay well i won't alert her to this um so <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure she i'm sure she listens to your podcast so this I'm could sure be the moment this could be the moment <laughs> this could this could be this could be my big moment in quarantine um so when you first researched the story um, you said earlier you were going to do a big article uh, for the New York Times. <clears throat> so you go in, you get a meeting with Ike. He's probably th he's probably thrilled because he he wanted you to come to his house because you're with the New York Times and he can point to the picture and say, look at this New York Times, you know, um, journalist, because that was all, he was all about that. You know, look at this picture of Brooke Shields, look at this picture of all these people. So you go in to meet with Ike. You talk to him for two hours. And when you leave, you realize that the recording didn't work. So tell me about 
that that meeting and then that moment when you were like, oh shit, like everything well, you just I told mean, me, like I don't have. Right. The first thing to, to know about that meeting was Ike was not pleased to see me because he knew I was coming in to talk about Marty because I had I had told him that I had, uh-huh. we would set we had set this up as an interview, and and he viewed this as an opportunity to defend himself and to try and pre- to prevent is the wrong word, try and uh, persuade me uh, not to publish that, that, that Marty's uh, accusations were bogus and there was nothing there. So, you know, I was sitting in what would be the chair that the patient sits in, or maybe I actually I take it back. I was sitting in the chair that the therapist would usually sit in. Ike was sitting on the couch with a stack of papers at least a foot and a half high. And the papers were uh, uh, the document, the documentary evidence, such as it were, of his relationship with Marty. In fact, many of the papers uh, replicated papers that Marty had shown me. Right. Um, And so every time I would say something, he would pull out a page and say, well, don't forget, Marty said this in 1990 about what a wonderful guy I am and how I saved his life. And on and on. That's kind of the tenor of the meeting. Right. And then when I left, and, and and much to my chagrin, I had not taped it. Boy, would that have been nice to have for the podcast. <laughs> um, he then decided that he would not have a second interview, which I had we had both agreed to. And he started sending um, notes uh, to the Times about what a bad guy I was and how I was. It basically accused me of not trying to interview him, but trying to prosecute him. And that my questions were all prosecutorial in nature and that I could therefore not be trusted, yada, 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 yada. And then what happened over the next months as we came closer to publication is that he really put on the full court press trying to um, trying to get the story stopped. Now, the story the story wasn't published, but but not because of anything Ike did. The editor uh, of The New York Times at the time, Jill Abramson, she just concluded she just thought it needed more work. Period end of story. And okay. that happens that happens all the time. I can't imagine. Honest, yeah, I had been working on this on and off for, you know, a year and a half and I was spent. Yeah. And um I put it in a drawer for a while and then I took it back out and I made some phone calls to try and do some of the things that she wanted and I just didn't have the energy anymore. I just couldn't do it anymore. So I kind of gave up and uh, moved on and never thinking, never thinking that it would reemerge as a podcast, you know, all these years later. Well, what made, what, what made you pull it out of the drawer and dust it off and do it again? Well, over the years, um, every once in a while, people would come to visit me in the Hamptons, friends. And Sometimes we would start talking about next door and I tell them this insane story and people would say, wow, tell me more. And then I'd hand them the manuscript. <laughs> yeah. And one of the people I did that with was my son, Nick, who is now um, an art director for, um, you know, for streaming shows like um, Netflix and HBO. That's kind of what he does. Cool. So he's in the business and, and, and he understands this stuff. So when Wondery did its first big hit, Dirty John, which I'm sure you're not only familiar with, but you've probably done podcasts about. Of course. That's my coffee. Sorry. 
I hope, okay. I hope you don't mind. I've got my coffee too. It's all right. So when, when, <laughs> when, when Dirty John came out, my son called me and he said, Dad, you must listen to this podcast. So I listened to it. I liked it a lot. And um, I called him back and I said, okay, I've listened to it. It's great. Why did you want me to listen to it? And he said, because that's your, that's how you need to tell your story. There uh, it is. Uh-huh. So I then took the manuscript to the podcast person, the podcast team at, at Bloomberg. Now they had mostly done, you know, half hour interview podcasts or informational podcasts, that sort of thing. They'd never done a, narrative true crimey six or seven part podcast that was new to them but they were what i didn't know is they were really interested in getting into that space Mm -hmm. and so what i also didn't know was that they had begun discussions with wondery about doing something together perfect timing yeah and so uh apparently there was so i'm told later that there was a meeting with wondery and they had a whole list of ideas and they went down the list and, and Hernan and, and Hernan <laughs> Lopez looked at, looked at, uh, looked at that one and said, that's the one the shrink next door. That's the one we want to do. And that's how it began. And it's, it's pure luck that I wound up with the same people who did dirty John. Um, but I'm very thankful for that. And I know this is getting ahead of kind of the way you want to do this, but I, you know, the people who worked with me on this from Wondery were were fantastic, and I learned a shitload. Oh, can I say that? Of course I am. I'm podcast. Yes, I can say whatever. I can say you can say I whatever you want. <laughs> and they also hired a um, an audio engineer, Krista Ripple, who really was way more than an audio engineer. She was a great journalist, and she was a true partner. So I, I loved the collaboration, and I loved the craftsmanship that Wondery brought to the project. Absolutely, it was beautifully done. Okay, we have to take a little break and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, any time you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six free months of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. Okay, I'm back with Joe Nocera of the podcast, The Shrink Next Door. Okay, Joe, when you first heard the story that Marty had been taken over by his psychiatrist, Ike, did you think to yourself, is something wrong with Marty? Like, how could he be taken over this way? Of course I did. Of course I did. And what have you concluded now and all these years uh, later? There's, there's, okay, there's, there's, I have several conclusions, so just, just bear with me a little. Okay. When I, when I first started working on the story... Uh, back in 2011, when Marty was really still emerging from Ike's grip, I realized at that moment that he was treating me the way he had once treated Ike. In other words, he was hungering for my approval. He was telling me, you know, anything I wanted, he would get for me, you know, informationally or otherwise. Um, he actually, so he is not like that anymore. Okay. 
he's absolutely not like that anymore, but he was then. And you could sort of see how he could be uh, drawn in by a powerful father type figure um, just because of his personality, not because there was anything wrong with him, but just because of his personality. And this is especially true because in the beginning of the relationship, in ways that were psychiatrically inappropriate, but were very helpful to Marty, Ike did step out of his role as a psychiatrist and solve a handful of problems that were really bothering Marty. And and, and Marty was intensely grateful for that. Mm-hmm. And it caused him to want to do anything that Ike said and and ask him and and that's really how he got drawn into the relationship uh that's my nine-year-old coming up and down the stairs that's okay i don't even hear it (laughs) well that you know that i'm glad you said that that's interesting because phyllis said when she first reunited with marty after all those years 27 years that she found him to be very changed she found him to be crass and that he would say things inappropriately like you know he, she mentioned he dated a woman and you know mentioned her cellulite things like this and um when judith met with him she really couldn't believe the story that she was hearing about the 27 years that was lost between them until she went to the hamptons house and she saw hershkoff on the mailbox hershkoff on the welcome mat and then the whole house was redone and had all these pictures you mean phyllis by the way not judith I'm, what did i say you said judith no, um, Judith was another person, <laughs> Phyllis. Who I hope we'll get to. Yeah, we're going to get to Judith too. Um, yeah, Phyllis, the sister, I'm sorry. So, you know why? Because I wrote it down wrong. Okay, so Phyllis couldn't fathom that this has happened until she goes to the Hamptons house, which of course she was familiar with already. And she just couldn't believe it. And she goes there and they're cooking in the kitchen. And Marty says, oh, let me go into my bedroom and get my own food. He wasn't allowed to have his own food in his own house. He wasn't sleeping in the master. And Phyllis went through and really sort of took charge of that situation and started bagging up the clothes and then found all the gifts in the closet. Now, Phyllis today. Now, wait, wait, wait. Explain. The gifts were, were gifts that were given to Ike and Becky, his wife in appreciation for the summer parties from the guests. And he never even opened them. Right. And um, and, and Marty was the one who had done all the work um, and paid for most of it right. uh, for those parties. Right. And so when Phyllis gets out there and sees what really happened, I would really like to know, I mean, she had all the, the anger and resentment and all these family feelings and everything towards her brother who had ditched her 27 years early. And that that's a whole story about the, 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 the jewels and the bonds and the, all that and the Swiss bank accounts and all this stuff. And she, when she gets out there and she sees all that, does she think, oh, my brother's been completely brainwashed? Like, I can't believe like she did. Well, first of all, she took control of the situation, which was great. And then, like you said, she's over there right now. Has my main question is I'm getting to it. Has the house been at this point de-iked, and now it yes. looks like Marty lives there? Did, yes. Do they? Yes. They, Phyllis, Phyllis, Phyllis did take control, but Marty was happy about that too. Um, 
uh, they took all that stuff off the walls, all the photographs of Ike with celebrities, all the trophy stuff, all the everything. They put it in a basement in the in a basement where it resides to this day. Uh, it's a treasure trove if you're doing journalism. Yeah. Um, they repainted. And this is one of my favorite touches. They repainted the tennis court, which had been a series of garish colors, which is a classic Ike thing. He doesn't like to do anything anybody else does. And they repainted it normal tennis blue. Yeah. And, and you know, they just took it over. Now, now Phyllis, she was perplexed at first. Um, I, she, to this day isn't quite sure why Marty was so susceptible to Ike. Um, but, you know, before this all happened, they had been unbelievably close. They really only had each other when their parents died. Um, and, and, and Marty had helped her get through her divorce and helped her buy her apartment. And, you know, they only had each other. So um, when Marty made that phone call 27 years later, um, as angry as she had been all those years and as abused as she had felt by by Marty's occasional responses when she tried to reach out, she was willing to try and reestablish the relationship because it had meant so much to her um, before this all happened. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that she had told, you know, her kids, if my brother ever needs an organ, I'll do it. But otherwise, he will never get yes. one drop of blood, you know. Yes. Phyllis, Phyllis can be a little dramatic. <laughs> well, um, okay. So I want to talk quickly about the financial part. So we heard from Marty and other patients like um, Judith. And then there was one other woman that you talked to that Ike had them make him, Ike and his wife, Becky, and their daughters, the sole beneficiary in their will, in the will. Which is just crazy. I mean, it's crazy. That's- well, that that's not quite accurate. Okay. Um, uh, although now that I think about it, it's pretty close to accurate. Um, so what he did was um, he had he had, he had Marty. Not you must remember, by the way, that Ike denies all of this, and Ike says that Marty is the one who pushed for this, and he wasn't suggesting it. So just I just want to put that on the table. Okay. But basically, Marty says that Ike persuaded him to put the house in the Hamptons in his will, giving it to Becky Herskoff, Ike's wife. And that the rest of Marty's estate would go to the foundation that Marty co-controlled with Ike. Right. Which, of course, does mean that Ike would control the estate right. um, uh, once he died. In addition, Ike... Uh, persuaded another patient, much wealthier than Marty, um, uh, a, a highly successful female businesswoman, to um, put aside $20 million in her will for Ike's children. Now, that woman was with Ike for about 10 years, and obviously when she broke off, which was about four or five years before Marty, she immediately changed her will just as Marty changed his will once once he broke off. But in addition, um, Ike was the co-signer on Marty's Swiss bank account. As I said, they had the foundation together. Um, now, Ike, one of Ike's defenses is that he never took a salary from the company. Even though he had the title of president, <laughs> he continued to um, charge Marty an hourly rate as a quote-unquote consultant. 
Um, uh, and so his bills to Marty starting in around 1987 um, were under the name of uh, Isaac Stevens, which was his what, what Marty and I like to call his nom de commerce. Uh, he had an assumed name, and he uh, and and I and Marty would would write the checks to Ike, Isaac Stevens, and Ike would characterize this as a built business consultancy, not an act of psychotherapy. Um, okay, so I know that the lawyer that helped draw up um, all these contracts, uh, putting uh, the money here and there spoke with Marty and also spoke with, was it Judith that was the other person that no, gave all No, it was their, another woman. It was it's another, another woman. woman. I, can't, okay. I, I can't remember the name we call her in the... In the... Um, I think it might have been Emily. Yeah, I think it was too. Yeah, um, so right. the lawyer actually, after, you know, um, Ike's lawyer, after setting it all up, calls both of them and says, I just want to let you know, this is like highly unusual, you know, uh, doctor patient and setting up these things. So I would like you to do a whole separate letter explaining explicitly that you approve of this, you know, not under duress, whatever. Right. Now, that's a good, I mean, that's a good lawyer, I guess. But has, did you ever get a chance to talk to this lawyer or did you even try? Um, I did talk to him, actually. Um, and he, his line was, the whole thing was weird. And, you know, he was a little suspicious, but it wasn't his business to tell the client what to do. And if the client was willing to write this letter, you know, he was willing to drop the document. Crazy. And um, yeah. And, 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 and in fact, what got the, the lawyer thinking about this was when the woman redid her lawyer to give, re, excuse me, redid her um, will to give the 20 million to Ike's children. The lawyer thought, oh, my God, Marty did that like four years ago. Mm -hmm. So suddenly the lawyer is like on alert and he goes back to Marty and says, Marty, if you really want this to be valid after you die, you better write me a letter explaining why you're allowing somebody with a psychiatric relationship with you to, um, you know, in, in, in essence, uh, be the executor of your will. Right. Uh, um, and, and, and that document, by the way, that's a four page letter. And it says all kinds of wonderful things about Ike and Becky and, and how <laughs> Marty didn't want his sister to ever get the money. And, you know, it has these weird sort of, I recollect when I was in trouble and, you know, I called Ike at two o'clock in the morning, yada, yada, yada. That document has become unbelievably important um, uh, because it's the core of Ike's defense that he didn't do anything wrong. He uses that letter to say, look, look what Marty wrote. Look what he said. And Marty says, of course, I didn't write that letter. Ike I wrote typed it. it. Yeah. I typed it, but I didn't write it. Ike wrote it. Right. Um, so there you go. Um, so, you know, we're talking about the obvious breaches of the patient-doctor relationship. There was Judith and um, the other woman who I think was Emily that was saying it was so important for them to be La Familia, to be in the family, to be invited to these parties, and you never wanted to be off the list. And Ike would gossip with them about other patients and try to set up patients with each other and all these crazy things. And uh, Marty would go into his office and he would hand Marty a stack of papers 
and say, type this up for me or fax this for me. Now, Marty, like Ike pointed out a lot, is a uh, Ivy League educated lawyer and the CEO of a company. And he's taking things to his office and typing them up for his therapist, who is now halfway taken over his company. Um, so when we talk about, you know, La Familia, uh, Judith and the others knew Marty, but did they know that that house was Marty's or they all thought that house was Ike's? Nobody knew that house was Marty's. Nobody. Um, I, I, now, I'm glad you mentioned Judith, though. I, I would like to dwell on her for a few minutes okay, if you please. don't mind. So, um, I think episode four, which is the episode about the other people whose mm-hmm. lives were taken over by Ike, right? Or who is the most important episode, and it's the most powerful and the most heart wrenching. Judith, as bad as this was for Marty, at least he has a sister now, and he has his nephew, nieces, and nephews, and. Um, and he gets to treat them like grand, uh, the grandfather because because um, Phyllis is long divorced. Um, Judith's life was completely destroyed. Um, let, let me remind she, my listeners: she's the one who uh, cut off all ties with her mother because I right. helped her remember all these years of abuse, and then encouraged right. her to never speak to her mother again. Her mother was dying; she didn't sit shiva, she didn't right. do any. That's that's the one, right? Right. She, okay. Yeah, that's right. She never. Um, made her peace with her mother, even when her mother was dying. And um, she also broke off a friendship that was really important to her at, at Ike's insistence. And, and to this day, she has no one in her life who is family. Her daughter doesn't speak to her. Her ex-husband doesn't speak to her. Her, her, her brothers and sisters don't speak to her. This wrecked her life. And she is a sad... I admire her very much for coming on the show it was took it took and it was a gutsy thing for her to do she was really worried scared about what i how i can retaliate um but she did it because she thought it was important and she thought it was important that people know and 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 i i i stand in awe of her really is she is she in the um the case before the new york um new york state department of health is she patient b and Marty is no, patient A. Marty is patient A. So first of all, let's let's tell people um, uh, after the podcast came out, um, the Department of Health, which had been sitting on a complaint from Marty for about four years, finally decided to take up the complaint. Um, there's a lawyer there uh, who is acting as kind of the prosecutor. Uh, there are five judges. A um, couple of lawyers, a couple of psychiatrists, and one doctor, I think. I'm not 100% sure of that. Um, the uh, hearings, uh, which are sporadic because they all have full-time jobs, have had to be stopped because of, um, of COVID-19. Mm. Um, but patient B is Emily. Um, okay. And patient A is Marty. Marty has testified at great length. Ike has testified, but he has not yet been cross-examined. And if the hearings ever start up again, that's what's going to happen next. Well, I was going to ask you about that because um, at the end of uh, The Shrink Next Door, you you give an update that Marty had for years, four years, I guess, uh, it called every six months or so. And first it was with the New York Psychiatric Board and the American Psychiatric Board. Yes, it was. The, it was right. 
it was it was the it was the I can't remember the exact name, but it's the New York Division of the American Psychiatric Association. That's what it is. And they let him know (laughs) that they let him know that Ike had not renewed or let his membership lapse to the New York Psychiatric Board and the American Psychiatric Board, but yet is still practicing. Now, I don't obviously you don't have to be a member to practice, I guess. Um, Okay, so. So here's yes, you don't. It's it's an association. It's not. It doesn't have a. It doesn't have power to. Okay. Um, uh, it's an association, and he he dropped out of it, and dropping out of it uh, caused the American uh, Psychiatric Association to have to cancel a hearing that it was going to hold about Ike's behavior. Mm-hmm. So then the only possibility after that is the Department of Health, the New York State Department of Health. Uh, because they have the ability to to take away his license. So those proceedings, what you're saying is those proceedings had started, but now because of COVID-19, he has not yet been cross-examined and it's it's still ongoing, but we had to take a break. Right. I mean, who knows? Who knows how long it's going to take? How old is Ike now? 69, I think. Yes, he's 69. How old is Marty? 77, I believe. Wow, it's quite a bit, quite a bit older. Interesting. Yeah, he is. Um, he's all, okay, wow, okay. All right, so we have to take a little break and we'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups. It would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. I uh, I would be remiss if I don't ask you about what everybody wants to know about is the Netflix series coming out about this. Okay, first of all, it's not Netflix. It's not. It's okay. Apple TV. Ooh, it's Apple, Apple TV. TV. I have I have that Apple TV. Okay. We're we're super excited. Um, it's going to be as hot as the morning show was. I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, Will Farrell is playing Marty. Paul Rudd is playing Ike. Um, Georgia Prichett, uh, who is a fantastic screenwriter, uh, her credits are uh, include uh, Succession and Veep. I mean, is two the of show the best, sh- two of the best shows ever. Yeah. She's the showrunner, um, and you know, I couldn't be more excited. It's gonna be a it's gonna be a long form series like the morning show. Uh, there. It's actually going to be more like, um, did you see Homecoming on Prime Video on Amazon with Julia yes. Roberts? Yes, I did. Yes. Okay. So those, that was a drama that was done as a half hour episodes. Okay. 
Instead of, in other words, the way they usually do it is the comedies are the half hours and the dramas are the hours. Right. But Homecom- Homecoming was a show that was a drama in half hours. And that's what Shrink is going to be. Okay. It's going to be uh, eight or ten uh, half hour episodes. It could be 20 episodes for sure. <laughs> I mean, uh, well, you got to stop somewhere, Mary Payne. I, well, you do, but there's so many. Like I said, this it's just, it's a five prong story, as we said. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you this: I heard where I heard it. I don't know, but I heard at some point that Alec Baldwin was going to be the shrink. News to me. Okay, I, I never I never heard that. Well, that would be good casting, but Paul Rudd is even better. The casting is so brilliant that now I just have it in my mind. Um, I could just imagine Paul Rudd and the outfits and the uh, right. and the pool parties and the whole. Uh, I mean, absolutely. So absolutely. Will you will you be at the premiere party? If they invite me. <laughs> will you go with <laughs> Will you go with Marty? <laughs> uh, I'm sure Marty will go with Phyllis, and I'll go with my wife. That's my guess. That's amazing. Okay, so I already asked you about the Hamptons house. And I was going to ask you just, uh, what is this? This is your wedding ring? No. One, <laughs> two, three, four, five. Five what? Minutes. Five minutes? Oh, listen, I'm not, yeah, I'm only semi-professional here. Okay, five minutes. Okay. My, my last question was going to be, how does your wife feel about the house now that it's been de-iked? Because I know she didn't like it so much when it had all the to it (laughs) (laughs) uh my wife likes marty and phyllis very much um but it's still pretty eccentric over there one of the things marty has done in the past couple of years is he started uh raising honeybees oh and he has six he has six or seven chickens he has a chicken coop okay he gets his eggs he gets fresh eggs every morning and he brings Um, them to you and and dawn Dawn, Dawn is a is a Type A New York woman, uh, living in a in a in a in a in a New York City apartment most of the time when she's not out here, as am I, of course. Uh, so I would say the chicken coop and the bees are not quite her style. <laughs> I know people that raise bees too, and I'm like, why? It just seems like you've been setting yourself up to get stung. Um, so you mentioned um, Dirty John. Would you would you recommend any other podcast that you've listened to recently, or do you only listen to Bloomberg type news things? No, 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 no. I, I, there's a podcast that I recommend all the time that doesn't get the uh, attention that it that it deserves. Okay. Um, and that's um, Running from Cops. <gasps> oh, I not only did I listen to that, but I did um, a recap on it. But I've never been able to get. Um, Dan on my podcast. He's another well, one that I've been chasing. I, I I think that's the most <clears throat> I think that's the most brilliant podcast I've listened to <clears throat> in the in the two or three years I've been listening closely to podcasts. Um, I think it it it's surprising. It's important. It really says something about America and how it's changed. Um, I, I I can't say enough good things about it. Um, that's Dan Taberski, and he, of course, did Missing Richard Simmons, which was hugely popular, and then he did um, the Y2K one, and then he did Running From Cops. Um, right. Running From Cops was great. I, I, 
Dan Taberski is like you or like my favorite murder. It's like people that I'm like dying to have on that I'm constantly asking. Um, okay. Well, you know, I think, I think you're right. I think it was very important because if people don't know, it's about the TV show cops and how it sort of changes the, the towns that it goes into. And, uh, and, and also, and also changes the dynamic of police forces and how they operate. Yeah. It's like, do they want to get TV time or do they really want to arrest somebody? Um, yeah. All right. So tell everybody where they can find you on social media and more about the shrink next door and the shrink next door coming on Apple TV and all that jazz. Well, uh, you can find me on Twitter. That's really the only thing I use. Uh, but I am a pretty, <laughs> a pretty insane, uh, Twitter user. You uh, are. I'm, yes. My <laughs> handle is opinion underscore Joe. Yeah. And you have um, a lot of opinions. I like it. I do have a lot of opinions, <laughs> and I post all my Bloomberg columns on Twitter. I don't really use Facebook much, uh, or and I don't use Instagram at all. In fact, I don't even know how to use Instagram. Um, um, I draw the line at Twitter. I'm 67. I feel I feel like I've done a good job just learning how to do Twitter. You do a great um, job. The, the Shrink Next Door, obviously, you can get it on every pod, uh, you know, every podcast um, platform there is. Um, and the TV show, given the coronavirus, you know, who knows when it's going to happen, but it will happen. Okay. So they had, they hadn't started shooting it yet. No, no, but, but she is diligently writing. Georgia's diligently writing the scripts now. Okay. Well, I can't wait. Like I cannot wait. I'm sorry. I said, I'm sorry. I said Netflix instead of Apple TV. I knew it was Apple TV, but I think that the. Everything is Netflix, so I always just say right. it. But I'm thrilled that it's Apple TV because we have that, and they seem to have some really good programming over yeah, there. Do. A couple of things I'm interested in. Okay, guys, thank you, thank you, thank you, Joe. Thank you. I know we had to stop and start, and now you're at a pizza place trying to get your best Wi-Fi, and uh, that's Hampton's life, I guess. I appreciate it so much. Yeah, there's very few downsides about living here, but sporadic Wi-Fi is one of them. Um, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun, and um, let's do it again when the shrink uh, hits the TV. Uh, hits the TV. Oh, I could talk to you every day. This is like <laughs> this has been this has been entertaining. I just told our engineer. I was like, it's like if he would give me two hours, I would talk to him for two hours. But I know I know you've got uh, things to got, do and kids to take care yeah, of. It's it's online schooling time now. That's right. Okay. Thank you, Joe. Bye.